Here, see the locksmith. He has a job. Not a very important one, but a job nonetheless. The prison is to be used again, but not as a prison. He does not know how else they would use such a place. Hear the noises. The locksmith does, and his eyes shift. He has not grown used to them. He cannot grow used to them. They never feel close, but always as though they're approaching. Always as though they are just around the corner. The air here is rank and musty. The choking smell of decaying metal drifts past his nose, down his throat. He examines the ancient lock. 140 years it's held. 140 years it's kept secrets and pain and screams behind its bars. He pulls against the door. He rattles the bars. He tests the rusted lock. It holds. Of course it holds. Hear the prison answer. The locksmith hears. He cannot shake the feeling that the distant bars shook in the same rhythm, with the same vigor. Now the locksmith feels light in the head, shaky at the knees. The job must be done fast. Hear the lock give way. Hear the door open. The locksmith is struck with a great force, a tempest that holds him in place. The walls of the cell before him change. The cracks extend and warp, melting into each other. The faces emerge, terrible scarred faces twisted with great anguish. Their voices are raspy. They drool concrete and fleck spit made of pebbles and sod at the frozen locksmith. They curse the walls. They curse the prison. They curse the locks. Here, see the prison. Its beams are rusted. Its cages crumble. But the pain is renewed. And its horror will never die. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. It was the Enlightenment thinker's fault, really. Voltaire, 
Montesquieu, Beccaria, Bentham. Crime, they said, was not a problem of the evil of man, but of the evil of the state. Therefore, the onus was on the state to help the individual seek redemption. A fair and true criminal justice system would lessen the overall problems of crime in a just society. The newly formed United States took these ideas to heart. In the late 18th century, the Pennsylvania system was born, a shining champion of prison reform. It operated around a simple question, are all people inherently good? If they are, then even the worst criminals in society would return to a morally righteous state, given the time and isolation needed to reflect on their misconduct. The Pennsylvania system suggested that rather than overcrowded jails and strict short-term punishment, we should look to solitary confinement as the pathway to redemption. But to employ such a revolutionary system, they needed a facility the likes of which had never been seen. In 1823, they called upon famed architect John Haviland to construct the largest and most expensive public building in the United States. Haviland delivered with splendor. Not only was the neo-Gothic aesthetic striking and terrifying all at once, the very design of the building lent to the philosophy behind the Pennsylvania system and solitary confinement. Everything was about making sure inmates' needs were completely taken care of in total isolation so that they could focus on the thing that mattered, penitence. From above, the penitentiary resembles a wheel with cell blocks jutting out from the central hub like spokes. This allowed for complete control, isolating prisoners by their crimes or gender or any other type of categorization authorities deemed necessary. Internally, the prison was a modern marvel, complete with plumbing, hot water for showers, private toilets and water taps luxuries granted only to the most elite members of American society. Each cell had a private exercise yard, so there would be no reason for an inmate to leave their humble abode. But there is a fine line between philosophy and execution. There's a terrible risk of pairing men drunk on power with those vulnerable to being kept in isolation and total darkness. You think you know terror and loneliness. I've seen it in your face, child. I've seen it when I blow the candles out at night. <laughs> You're old enough now, something like that shouldn't scare you none. But I know how those howls get to you. I know what happened to you to make you this way. But you don't know screaming like I know it. You tell me, child. Do the screams become the walls? When you look at one and hear the other, what then is the difference? The barrier, the sound, both trap you there. Both hold you in the confined state of your teetering sanity. That's the thing about the place I was. Walls of the cell didn't move, didn't change or vibrate with nothing but a beating sense of cold. But that's where the screams came from. 
loud, as if they were sitting right there in the cell with you. See, the second you get in there, they throw that hood on your head. That itchy, rough burlap sack that shapes your lips and nose every time you so much as breathe. And if you so much as cough in that thing, you're in for the type of pain you ain't ever knew existed. Just one little question was all it took for them to grab me. Got put in what they called the mad chair. With straps so tight, I still got the scars. Leave you there for days, till you don't know what time is no more. One time I got caught looking out my tiny little meal hole after hours. Guard says if I'm so curious about what goes on outside my cell, I might see what it's really like. Them boys soaked me through with water, then strung me up outside on the wall in the dead of winter. Leave you there till your skin freeze so bad you could crack it with a tap of a hammer. That night I lost feeling in my left hand for good. It's why your brother can punch through a wall and not bat an eye. But I'll tell you, man, none of that, absolutely none of that, compares to what happened to the preacher. I call him the preacher, because I don't know his name. He was my friend, only person I talked to for four years. I say talk, but I mean something different than what you're thinking, but that was about all I had to go on. Most meaningful thing I ever shared, for you were born. When you in the dark for that long, when you don't even see people, when you can't talk to them, can't touch them, you don't even know the expression on their face, well, you'd be damned if you knew what you'd do for company. So when I heard those first taps, I put my ear right up against the cold concrete of my cell and tapped right back. At first, it didn't mean nothing. Then, I don't know how it happened, but we started to understand each other, Preacher and me. We came up with a tap for everything. Now, little lady, you might think that making a whole new language was something difficult, but we had nothing but time. Time. And loneliness. Then one day, things changed. The noises from Preacher's cell started changing. They became random. He kept saying this and that about creatures in the walls. I knew there was rats that ran through the building. Hell, I had rats in my cell, but we had a word for rat, and he didn't use that word. He said, creature. When he started screaming, I tapped for him to stay quiet. They would come for him. Sure enough, the door burst open, and footsteps filled with vile frustration stormed into that cell. I stopped tapping and listened attentively at the wall. They beat him until he was silent. 
I tapped so he knew I was there. I tapped knowing he would not respond. But his screams did not stop, and neither did the beatings. I tapped, he screamed. They beat him again and again until one day it all stopped. The screaming, the beating. Preacher was gone. For two days I sat there. You got your little dolls, little lady. But in that cell, all I had was Preacher. Even when he was suffering, at least I knew he was there. At least I wasn't alone. So I watched the light change, and I studied my skin. And every moment felt like some form of twisted agony. Then he was back. I tapped a greeting. It was a long time before he responded. When he did, he told me the things they had done. First, they dragged him down the cell blocks. They didn't even bother to put his hood on. Preacher told me the cell blocks they kept us in was long, like they was never-ending. And they was evil, he said. Wearing the hood was better. They took him to a room that looked like all the other rooms and bound him to a chair so they could shove something in his mouth. It was metal and sharp. It pressed down on his tongue and drew blood. Preacher watched in horror as they attached the gag to a pair of handcuffs. He knew right away, if he struggled, the sharp metal in his mouth would only slice into his tongue more and more. They made sure that he struggled. Preacher, he tried to resist. He drooled and fixed his jaw and strained his muscles as tight as they could so they wouldn't so much as flinch. But his body was tired and bruised from weeks of battering, and it wasn't long for he tried to bring his arms up and block that final blow. And just like that, Preacher's tongue was cut clean off. The guards only laughed as the blood bubbled in his mouth. And then he was here. No more or less mute than he had been before. I couldn't tell if that last bit was a joke. I couldn't tell if Preacher's laughter was drowned forever. Next night, around the time they brought us our food, Preacher started screaming again. Except now without a tongue, it didn't amount to much. So he started tapping against the wall. Lightly at first. Soft enough that I thought I must be mistaken at the nonsense I was hearing. Saliva, the tap said. Saliva from above. Then the taps changed. He pounded. Tongue. A tongue above. Dripping and dripping. He was going to drown. I was confused and afraid. But what could I do? Shout to the guards and get myself beat? Become like Preacher? The last tap said the same phrase over and over. Smells blood, it said. We smell blood. 
never got to ask Preacher what that meant, because the taps changed again. This time, they came from something rounder, hollower. The thing rapped against the wall in a type of gibberish one, two, three times. Then the sound of a strange crack. Then silence. Coming up, we'll have more from the cell blocks of Eastern State Penitentiary. Now, back to the story. The Pennsylvania system, first employed when Eastern State Penitentiary opened in 1829, was founded on the principle of humane treatment towards prisoners. With their basic needs taken care of, a criminal could utilize their solitude as a chance to reflect on the benefits of being morally good. But the Eastern State Penitentiary learned quickly that philosophy and action do not always line up. As early as 1834, merely five years after opening its doors, the prison was investigated for corrupt policies and cruel and unusual punishments of its inmates. Nothing came of these inquiries. The brutality happening inside Eastern State's walls was nothing short of horrendous. Inmates were subject to regular torture that included a device called the mad chair, where an individual would be strapped down for days at a time. In wintertime, guards would frequently douse prisoners with water and hang them from the penitentiary's walls overnight until their skin froze over. But the worst punishment by far was known as the iron gag, a sinister device that held down the wearer's tongue with a sharp, knife-like iron grip. The gag was connected to a pair of handcuffs, so that if the wearer struggled too much, the gag would slice off their tongue. One hour after being subjected to the iron gag torture, inmate Matthias McComsey was found dead in his cell. The prison said he died of a stroke, but many believe this to be a blatant fabrication to avoid possible suspicion of their punishment techniques. To this day, the cause of death remains a mystery. It's important to remember that all forms of punishment at Eastern State Penitentiary were enacted in the name of one thing and one thing alone, silence. They housed every type of criminal, men, women, murderers, debtors, and could do so by keeping different groups separated by cell blocks and individuals completely isolated. However, over the years, many were able to find loopholes around the treacheries of solitary confinement. Dearest Albert, it was with great sadness that I left you tonight. These cells are so lonely, and the rain has caused a terrible, incessant drip to come from my roof. I put this pen to paper because the second I left, I felt the need to see you again. What would they say if they caught us together, two inmates out of their cells? Could they take anything more from us? I suppose I would rather disappear forever than not see you again. 
I apologize if my writing is not as rich and lively tonight as it normally is. This place takes something out of you. Something that you didn't know you've had, but you've held on to for so long. And the sad part of it is, I think that thing will remain here forever. Perhaps it is good to leave such things behind. Do you remember when I stole that bottle of gin from the doctor's cart? I brought it to you, and you were so confused, but too happy to ask any questions. I did not even drink any. I just sat there and watched you. Your face cringed with a sharp taste, and then relaxed as if the walls ceased to exist. What I would do to see that face again. What I would do to drink just one more sip of gin. I hope that you write to me soon, my dearest Albert. Your words open me to hope, to a future, to a place outside these walls. Signed, your love friend, Evie Elwell. April 22nd, 1862. Dearest Albert Jackson, I received your note to me this night. Well, I assume it was to me. You made a silly mistake by not addressing it. But it came to my cell, and the lovely words you've written could be for no other. Could they? My darling, you must remember to address your letters. Imagine if such kind and loving words fell into the wrong hands. Oh, but how your words broke my heart to hear of how lonely you are, how you are no longer allowed to return to the yard, to hear how it pains you to creep around to the crevices of this confounded fortress, to be a creature of the shadows, lurking behind the walls where you can remove your hood and taste air that is not stale. Navigating mercilessly through the corridors of screams, the nightmares that drift in and out of the cells, like a mark of death. If I had you in the cell tonight, perhaps you would not be so lonely. Perhaps I could even bring the sunshine to you. It's midnight now, and I must go. Things come out at midnight things that think they know me. I need to hide from them. If they saw me writing to you, we would never see each other again. Signed, Miss E.V. Elwell. May 11th, 1862. Dear loved one, Albert G. Jackson. Lamb, my joy, my heart's delight. My hand is shaking as I write this letter. Miss H next door is still babbling about seeing you, about how you will come to her, and about how you love her. I pounded against the wall and shouted for her to stop. Secretly, I hoped the guards would drag her away and place her in the deepest depths of this dungeon, where they would beat away her sensibility. But she only laughed laughed and screamed nonsense about the prison not scaring her. 
No noises in the walls would cower her to silence. She was in love. She was in love with you, Albert Jackson. Normally, I would call this lunacy. Miss H is known to rant and rave and primp herself as though she walked around a gala and not a prison cell. But then, I saw something. Mr. Samuel Deal, as gracious as he is to let me out, had opened my cell door for a walk. I went down those long, tall chapel corridors with their straight and gleaming pipes. Each step down those treacherous hallways, bringing me closer to the arched light at the end of the tunnel. Each step making the walls feel tighter and tighter. Then... I went to one of the corners where you and I have passed many an hour. The one where the chains jut from the wall as if from nowhere. I saw you with her. I saw you laugh in ways you seem to have forgotten with me. I saw you grasp her hand and whisper things in her ears that made her blush. At first I was horribly angry. I tried to break everything in my cell. So violent was I that I heard the girls weeping. Julie and Kate got in such hysterics that they started shouting to the guards, Something's here. Something's in here. When I heard that frenzy, I settled down. I know you did not mean it, Albert. I know from your words, from your heart, that I am the only one that matters to you. You might flirt with Miss H., or any of the young ladies in this infernal cell block. If you leave me, you'll leave someone who loves you better than herself. You'll leave someone to die in anguish. I, too, have many suitors, men who cry out my name in the night. But my heart is yours alone, and yours is mine. I've been to your cell, dear Albert. I've watched you sleep. It's so easy to slip in there without shoes, to run my hand through your hair, to caress your feet while you breathe the deep breath of dreams. So when you close your eyes, heart of my heart, know that soon I shall be there. Signed, Elizabeth Valora Jackson. P.S. I hope you don't mind me using your name. I feel as if we are married in spirit. May 12, 1862. Dearest Albert, you've crossed a line and you cannot return. Your eye did not stop wandering. I saw you with Miss H, and with Julie, and with Kate. I'm afraid your heart is just a bit confused. I must confess as well. I was in your bed with you as you read my last letter. I saw you weeping. I saw too that they were not tears of joy. They were tears of fright. You looked this way and that as though something was watching you. Something was. I was. I'm afraid, my dear, that the things you have seen have troubled you so. 
I think it's time I protect you from them forever. Your hood is here with me, and I brought some needle and thread. It will only pinch a little as I attach it, but after, you'll be safe and blind to the terrors of the world. You will be within a place that we will call home. When I finished, I'll read you this letter, so you can understand why I've done the things that I've done. Your love friend, E.V. Elwell. Among the many records of the Eastern State Penitentiary kept from 1830 to 1892, one collection particularly stood out. The American Philosophical Society uncovered at least a dozen letters sent from a prisoner named Elizabeth Valora Elwell to another inmate named Albert Green Jackson. The letters detail Elizabeth's and Albert's mutual love, though sometimes they contain jealous outbursts. Though they both apparently had spouses in the outside world, they began referring to each other as husband and wife, and Elizabeth would occasionally sign her name with the surname Jackson. An interesting thing of note about these letters is that they referred to the many days the couple spent together. This suggests that the Eastern Penitentiary's policy of solitary confinement was not as strict as it seemed. However, there's something very peculiar about these love-stricken inmates. Besides the letters, there was no record that Elizabeth Valora Elwell was a prisoner. Not in the meticulously kept inmate records, nor in the warden's detailed journal. It seemed Elizabeth Valora Elwell was never at Eastern State Penitentiary at all. Elizabeth and Albert Jackson were supposedly released in 1863. Neither was ever heard from again. We'll have more from the dark halls of Eastern State Penitentiary after this. Now, back to the story. The cruelties of the Eastern State Penitentiary were no great secret. In the mid-1800s, Charles Dickens and many others visited the prison and spoke damningly of its terrible conditions. Unfortunately, Dickens' warnings did not reach the ears of officials in charge of the solitary confinement methods employed at the Eastern State Penitentiary. The Philadelphia system continued to be used at the prison until 1913, when it was officially discarded. This was less due to a public moral awakening than to the fact that overcrowding at the prison made solitary confinement unfeasible. In 1926, several cell block additions built on the main structure skyrocketed the population of the prison to 1,700 inmates. Over the years, the prison housed famous prisoners like Al Capone and continued to occupy a near-mythical status in the penitentiary system. But eventually, age caught up to the archaic Gothic building. By 1971, Eastern State Penitentiary was falling apart from the inside and out. It was officially shut down. For 20 years, the building suffered as an abandoned monument, 
and a victim to vandals, overgrown vegetation, and stray cats who accelerated the already rapid deterioration. Then, in 1988, activists petitioned the mayor of Philadelphia to maintain the prison as a historical site. In 1994, the prison officially reopened for tours and other more disturbing entertainment. Steve Buscemi's voice crackled through the ripped and rubbery earphones. His voice was a strange one to choose for the audio tour, but it did little to distract from the decrepit structure. Fear emanated from these dilapidated paint-chip walls, as if they pulsated with a type of dreadful history that was being relayed to him on the audio tape. Orin reeled with nerves. He did not do well in these nightmare-inducing hellscapes. The old wooden barn-like cell doors had a certain Scandinavian modern quality and would have looked attractive had they not been set to the background of this long, daunting hallway that looked like it could have led to the gates of hell. He had to stay focused. What he was doing here was important, or rather, it could be important. The last month had been a type of hallucination. It all started when he got an email. Well, Ava, his girlfriend, had gotten an email, but it was addressed to both of them. At first, it read like gibberish. Hallways always lead to dead ends. He who opens a school door closes a prison. Hmm. Normally, anyone would discard such a message as nonsense, except that this one had come from Oren's brother's verified email address, an address that hadn't been used since Oren's brother disappeared three years prior. A Google search of the second sentence quickly revealed that it was a quotation by Victor Hugo. This sparked countless hours of library research on the history and evolution of French prisons, a pathway it soon became apparent that Oren and Ava were not the first to take. Then, in the middle of the night, a call came on Oren's cell phone. The low voice was stern and forthright. You'll find the answer you need. Cell block 14. ESP. Oren's not sure why he didn't tell Ava. Perhaps he felt somewhere in his heart that this was something he had to do alone. And now, here he was. Steve Buscemi crackled in his ear that cell block 14 was the home of the hole. A place in the prison they would punish the prisoners by making them more isolated than they already were. These unfortunate souls would live off sparse stale bread and room with the cockroaches and rats that took shelter in the underbelly of the penitentiary. The corridor here was smaller. Oren instantly felt a sense of claustrophobia. Though the pipes here were just as rusted, the faint lights captured the same amount of floating debris, and the walls leaked the same amount of memory and disrepair. Something about it felt unstable. At the other end of the hall was a faint sound, as though someone were banging on a pipe, Oren reached out and grabbed a rope that ran along the wall. The lights flickered and taunted him with their feeble electricity. 
Orin breathed and pushed ahead. He had not even noticed that his audio tour had stopped playing. Whoever was striking the pipe was now doing so with greater force. Except now, every time the pipe rang out, it was accompanied by a distant shout. Something that Oren thought could have either been a cry for joy or of extreme pain. Whatever it was, there was somebody at the end of the hallway. Perhaps it was the voice from the phone. Perhaps it was... Oren dared not think of that. He continued forward, but nothing seemed to change. It seemed the same number of rusted doors lay in front of him as when he entered. He looked behind himself and saw that the hall's entrance was now far away, but the way forward only appeared as though it led to a black abyss. One thing was certain, the banging continued to grow louder. Oren called a greeting into the hall, unaware that his knuckles gripping the guide rope were strained and white. The palm of his flesh slowly burned against its rough fibers. He called again. He was answered with a terrible, cackling laughter. The noise reverberated within him. Oren felt suddenly drained. He looked back toward the entrance. It now looked the same backwards as it did forwards. The same descent into a blackened and unknown hallway. A journey into an infinity of darkness. He walked forward. The hallway remained unchanged until the lights flickered violently and went out completely. Everything stopped. The banging, the shouts, the laughter. Even the incessant drip from the ceiling stopped. Then one light, directly in front of him, attached to the ceiling by a frayed rope like the lights of a mining cave, began to flicker. Orin could vaguely make out the silhouette of a person. He started. The light flickered again, and the form was gone. Then it came on fully and illuminated the figure below it. It looked like a man, or at least Orin thought it was a man. The thing was completely covered in ragged, dirty clothing. On its head was a black, dusty hood, long enough to drape over his chest. There were dark patches where its eyes should have been. Its head was tilted to the side. Orin could see the hood blow out and condense with the thing's breath. He tried to squeeze the rope on the wall tighter, but it wasn't there. Looking upon the thing, Orin felt himself washed in immense loneliness. It coursed through his mind with a torrential wave of sadness and pain, as though he was living through a multitude of lives, all of them bound to the terrible suffering of isolation, all of them staring into a nothingness so intense that it burnt their lungs and suffocated their thoughts. Orin staggered to stay upright, to not back down from what was to come. Slowly, the hooded creature before him reached out and beckoned Orin to follow. 
Then it turned and walked down the endless hallway. As the thing walked away, the lights turned off and on, one by one, following the creature down the hallway. He knew that wherever the hooded thing was leading him would answer the many budding questions of the last month. He knew that the hallway that was once endless would finally have a destination. Perhaps it was the lingering feeling of solitude. Perhaps it was the death of his curiosity. Perhaps he simply was tired of breathing the stale air. But something hit him then. That perhaps certain walks were not meant to have a destination. Certain questions not meant to be answered. To know too much. To know things that others wouldn't understand. That could be the loneliest thing in the world. He spun on his heels to head back to the entrance, away from the creature who dragged the light with him. But when Orin reached out, he realized the rope wasn't there. The wall was no longer where it should be. He could see the way forward, the distant shine of the creature's path. But the way back, the way back had changed. Orin let out a great sigh and walked blindly into the dark, blindly back home, where everything was unknown. Eastern State Penitentiary is an attractive tourist destination for history buffs and paranormal enthusiasts alike. Those most attuned with the disturbing experiences of visiting the prison insist that each cell block has its own haunting flavor. Vicious laughter and harrowing voices ring down cell block 12. A horrible apparition is also said to chase unsuspecting visitors down its halls. In many different areas of the prison, but particularly in cell block 6, figures cast in shadows will dart in and out of prison cells, too quickly to follow. In the guard tower, a tall, silent ghost man stands and watches over the yard. He's believed to be the spirit of a guard murdered by an inmate many years ago. But cell block four has perhaps the most famous story. In the early 90s, locksmith Gary Johnson was changing the locks of the prison before it opened as a tourist attraction. When he unlocked a particularly troubling lock in cell block four, he was hit with an unrelenting, indescribable force. Faces began to emerge from behind the door, and a cold hand reached into his body. Johnson was sure that the ghosts intended to kill him. Many believe that this was the moment Eastern State Penitentiary became haunted. Johnson had unwittingly released the trapped, tortured spirits of the prison from their cell. Perhaps after spending so much time in complete isolation, the spirits preferred to live out their days in solitude. Now that this peace was disrupted, they seek vengeance of the world responsible. Today, it is often listed as one of the most haunted buildings in America.
Though the historical influence of Eastern State Penitentiary cannot be denied, it is the horrors of its methods that stand out the most. The suffering, both physical and mental, left a lingering imprint on its walls. Those who walk the hallways today are infected by the terror of the past with every echo, every unexpected gust of wind, every disturbing, distant sound. It's the potential of what these could be, of the agonizing pain felt within these walls, that is perhaps the most frightening of all. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Drew Cole. I'm Greg Polson.